Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today. Well, as we draw closer to Christmas season, I'm super grateful for the series that we've been in. And today we're gonna uh, pick up our series that we've called Gift Wrapped, from, la- from Longings to Lavished. And what we've been looking at is the fact that inside the heart of every human soul, there are longings. Every one of us has longings, longings for relationship, longing for security, longing for provision. But what life has taught us, what human history teaches us, and certainly what scripture reaffirms is that so often those longings are not met and they end in disappointment because we look to the wrong sources for fulfillment. Ultimately, the fulfillment of every longing of the human heart is found in Jesus Christ. The message of scripture is that he is the only one that is faithful, that he is not only promise maker, but he is promise keeper. And how many have found him to be a good and a faithful God, that he has provided everything your heart has longed for, amen? Well, as we go further today, we're gonna see how he uh, does that. But Christmas causes us to think about a number of things and, and maybe you're feeling a little bit of the stress and anxiety I'm feeling around gift giving. It's about this time of year, about three or four days before Christmas that I started thinking maybe I should get the gifts that I've been thinking about for the people that I wanna get gifts for. I don't know if there's any other procrastinators that are out there. If so, just wave at me, birds of a feather. It's all right, praise God. He forgives us, even in our procrastination. Uh, But in gift giving, there are anxieties, and the anxieties of wondering whether or not you're getting the person the right gift. Gary Chapman wrote this uh, very famous book, The Five Love Languages, in which he lays out the different ways that people hear love. Some through physical touch, some through words of affirmation, others through acts of service, others through quality time. But there are those people who hear I love you through gift giving. So that means that the pressure is high. You better give the right gift. Now think about this for just a moment. What is the worst gift you have ever given? Anybody out there just a terrible gift giver? You won't raise your hand to that, but we know exactly who you are. But if you're not a good gift giver, this is a skill that you can improve in. It's just a matter of listening. And maybe you don't remember the worst gift you've given, but I'm sure you remember the worst gift you've received. How many can think of that for just a moment? A terrible gift that somebody thought, oh, I'm sure they're going to like it, uh, but they don't. I'll tell you mine. Uh, It's not just one gift, but it's a category of gifts, and it is uh, surprises. I am just not big into surprises. Surprise birthday parties, surprise vacations. You ever see those commercials where uh, the husband or wife surprises their spouse with a new car? I would go crazy over that. If I showed up in my driveway with a car with a bow on it, my wife and I would have to go to marriage counseling. I'm just not into uh, big surprises, but yet there are times over and again that my family in an effort to really give me something special seek to surprise me and I just have not mastered the 
art of faking appreciation. I just don't do good. I look in the mirror, I practice, but it doesn't work out uh, in the end. Uh, maybe you've experienced that before, giving someone a gift that wasn't what was in their heart or receiving a gift uh, that didn't quite meet your heart. I bring this up because that's exactly what we're gonna study today. As we go to 2 Samuel chapter seven, what we're gonna see is the covenant that God makes with David, the Davidic covenant. And we're gonna visit David in a time in which he is offering to God something that he is sure God wants, something that he is certain pleases the heart of God, but ultimately he's gonna discover this isn't what God wanted at all. God wanted something opposite of that. You know, as we turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, let me just do a little bit of a recap. What we've discovered is that uh, one of the ways that you can tell the story of redemptive history is through covenants. Five covenants that God made with those in the Old Testament, all pointing to one new covenant that we'll talk about on Christmas Eve. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be awesome. But God made covenant with Adam and with Noah. He made covenant with Abraham and with Moses. He made covenant, as we're going to see today, with David and all Ultimately, all of those covenants point to the covenant that he makes with Jesus. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is more than a promise. It is an eternal commitment made by an everlasting God whose character is ultimate and supreme. Uh, the power of any promise is the character of the promise keeper. What good is a promise if you can't count on a person to deliver on it? But what we find in God is that he delivers on his promises, that he is faithful. That's why even through a year like 2020, we can still look back and reflect and say, God has been good. Is there anybody out there that ends this year with only another week to go and say in your heart that God is good? Anybody with me on that, that God is good? He is forever faithful and he is worthy to be praised because he is a promise keeper. My friends, that is not a cliche. If you're heart is longing for love, longing for salvation, longing for forgiveness, grace, mercy, purpose, destiny, all of those things are found in him. And that's why we've been studying his character, his history, because the best predictor of future performance is historical or past performance. You should consider that if you're single or if you're about to hire someone. You need to look and say, what is their past performance? Because that will be the best predictor or indicator. Not that people can't change, but that's the best predictor. And so it is with God as we look at his history. And so now we enter into this Davidic covenant. And to sum it all up, the, the covenant that God makes with David is simply this, is that through your lineage, I will send a Messiah who will save the world. Let's look at uh, what we find in verses 1 through 17. The big idea here is simple, and that is that you can't serve God better than God can serve you. You can't serve God better than God can serve you. That's another way of saying that our salvation is not based off of our works. You can't earn one iota of your salvation. We don't do works in order to earn God's love. We do good works because we have received his love. David got that a little bit confused. There's three ways that we uh, kind of uh, uh, learn uh, this lesson. And the first thing that we learn here is that God doesn't need our work for his glory. Look at verses one through seven. 
Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I will dwell, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the Lord dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Will you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I I, uh, brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in, in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? This is an interesting passage for several reasons. First off, it is a fulfillment of Exodus 33 and 14 where God promises uh, then Moses that there will come a day where his people of Israel will have rest from their enemies. This is the season that David is in. Israel has rest. Now, this is a temporal uh, moment in their history because if you know anything about the promise of God for Israel, this promised land, this land of Canaan, you know that they had to fight to get to the border of the promised land. They had a a second fight to get into the promised land, and they've had a third fight since they've been there to stay in the promised land. Don't think that just because God has promised you something that it won't come without challenge or difficulty. The promise of God is that it will ultimately be fulfilled, but yet there are challenges in in the process. And so David is going through this process, but now he arrives at a time when Enemies have been defeated and peace is there. And now he's looking around and he's living in a house of cedar. Now that may not be big to you, but during that time, that was big in Israel. Probably the greatest edifice they had ever seen was David's house. Don't forget, they're nomadic people. They don't have cedar, let alone people who know how to build houses. They've been tent makers. And so in order for David to have a house of cedar, historians say that he had to import not only the supplies, but he had to bring in the men who built the house. So here he is in prosperity, and it crosses his mind, I got a house of cedar, but the Ark of the Covenant that represents the presence of God is in a tent. If I have a house of cedar, surely God needs a house of cedar. So he devises this plan, and from David's perspective, this certainly must be what God wants. If I got a house of cedar, surely he wants a house of cedar. And then in comes Nathan the prophet, and there's nothing like a prophet to confirm your misguidings, right? And so here comes this prophet, and, uh, and you know that they made a mistake. And how do you know they made a mistake? Because when you read through those verses, you see, no place where they stopped to pray. They just did. They just came up with a plan and they just went forward with what they thought God wanted. And so Nathan says to David, David, uh, do what's in your heart. But then God says to to Nathan uh, in verse number four, hey, would you like to know my word on the matter? Would you like a little bit of input from me? How many would like to give some input in what you get for a gift? How many would like to give some input on that? Just three of you, praise God. Well, I hope it works out for the rest of you. I want to give some input on mine. God looks at at Nathan and says, would you like my word on it? Here's my word on it. My word is, I I don't need your house of cedar. (laughs) David, you've gotten this confused. 
Will you build me a house? I'm God. I don't need your house of cedar. He says to David, David, I've been in a tent. The, the Ark of the Covenant has been in a tent with all the judges. Everywhere you've gone, have you ever once heard me say, I want a house of cedar? You know, that, that moment had to put egg on his face. I mean, just think about it. Uh, all of us have been in, in a moment in a situation, in particular if you're married, where you give someone a gift and it is not on their wish list. And they look back at you and say, where'd you even get the idea that I would want something like this? This is not what I want. You know, God was saying to David, David, you need to understand that what I'm looking for is not your activity, but I'm looking for your heart. I don't need um, a physical house. What I need is for you to make your heart a home for me. That's ultimately what I need. He was trying to remind David that salvation is not by works, but it is by grace. It is by grace. It is, it is, it is grace upon grace. Our salvation, my friends, is not earned. I cannot stress that enough. We put our faith and our trust in the fact that God does love us because he said he loves us. And what do we do when we blow it? Well, we better not just check our resumes because the more we look at our resumes, the more we're gonna feel like there's no way that I'm loved and no way that I can be loved because I've blown it again and again and again. But how many thank God that he loves sinners? He loves those who blow it because we are not the assembly of the perfect. We're the assembly of the redeemed. And don't ever forget that. So God drives home to David. David, I love you, but I don't need you to build me anything. Bless your heart. Uh, but I don't need the house of cedar. You know, uh, I have wonderful children who uh, in their uh, sweet moments will make promises to dad of things that they want to do for me. And uh, I think about my, my son, Judah. He's my, my six-year-old. He's the one, and all of us who have multiple children, you know the one who's going to take care of you when you get old. You know which one I'm talking about, right? The rest of them, they're gonna go about their lives, have a great time, but there's that one you better treat right because he's gonna be the one to move me in and, when I'm older. Uh, but but I, I think about it, what if Judah came to me as a six-year-old and says to me, Dad, I'm gonna build you a house. It's sweet, but... Uh, that's not what I want from him. You know, my birthday just passed a few weeks ago and my kids kept asking me, Daddy, what do you want for your birthday? What do you want for your birthday? And they got me uh, things that I uh, sincerely appreciate. But in my heart of hearts, what I really wanted to say is, I just want you guys to get along and to behave well and to have a day of peace. Can I get an amen? Uh, let me get back to the Bible because this is being recorded. Um, but you know what I'm talking about, right? That's what, what, what God is saying to David is that, David, I know how to build houses. And we're gonna find this in just a moment. He's gonna talk to David about his, his building skills. David, if I needed a house of cedar, I could get me a house of cedar. What I need is your heart. And I believe that today what God is after is your heart. Yeah, it doesn't mean we don't serve him. It doesn't mean that we don't do great things uh, for him. But we don't do those things to earn his love. What we do is we receive his love, and then we offer him our lives. Amen? Second thing we learn in this passage is that God works to bring us into his rest. Look at how the tables turn on David, verse number 8, and we'll read through 11a. 
Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. That's an interesting way for him to refer to himself. Uh, make note of that, the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have uh, been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make up for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly for the, for the time that I I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. It's as if God says, David, you, you've forgotten who I am. Let me remind you of who I am. Let, let's just for a moment just remember who I am. First off, he refers to himself as the Lord of hosts. Whenever God refers to himself that way, that title means that he is the Lord of the armies of heaven, that he oversees all the angels. In other words, what God wants David to be reminded of is that not only is the earth the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but all of creation is mine. Over every square inch of created order, Christ declares mine. David, remember, I am the Lord of hosts. That's another way of God saying, I am sovereign. I do what I will, when I will, how I will. And then he makes it simply personal. He makes it deeply personal. He starts with reminding David of what he's done for him in his past. Notice all the I statements in every verse that I just read. Verse number eight, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over the people of Israel. I took you from being a shepherd to being a prince. Then verse number nine, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. As you sit back in your cedar palace and you think about how good you have it, remember it was me who took care of you. I'm the one who gave you peace. I'm the one who watched over you. He's jogging David's mind, not to embarrass him, but to remind him, he's gonna drive it home in just a moment to remind him, David, I don't need anything from you. You need from me. You know, we all have moments where we need an attitude adjustment. There are times when even I, as a pastor, have to be reminded, you know, when I come into church sometimes, I'm thinking like I'm doing God a favor. Have you ever had that mindset? You know, I'm, I'm giving God worship, I'm doing all these things for him, and, and God says, no, just remember, it's not me who needs you, it's you who need me. And that's not to be a word of rebuke, but a word of reminder of disposition. Well, God goes from reminding David of his past to talking to David about his future. He says in the B part of that verse nine, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. David, here's what I wanna do for you. I don't need a house of cedar from you. What I'm gonna do for you is give you a great name. I'm gonna give you a name that people will talk about thousands of years from now. And think about it. Right now, we're, gonna, we're talking about this, this king, David, who oversaw this relatively small nation called Israel, but has been an enduring nation because of the covenant that they made with God. God is keeping his promises. Verse number 10, 
I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. This again is a reaffirmation of what he's already said to Abraham and Moses of the promised land. I'm gonna give them their own promised land. The Messiah is going to secure this for them uh, there's going to be an immediate fulfillment, but an ultimate fulfillment as well. And ultimately, what God wants David to know is that, David, I'm working in ways that you don't even realize. While you're thinking about your projects and plans, understand that I have plans for you. God is at work in your life. And let me just tell you, even in the seasons where it looks like darkness has won, even in the seasons where it looks like your enemies are prevailing, God is at work, even in the shadows, God was working, and what was he working to do? He was working to bring his people into rest. Ultimately, what God is doing is working in our lives so that we can rest in him. You know, I've thought about this, maybe you have as well, and the older you get, you'll think about this, is if I could go back and talk to my younger self, what would I say? Anybody ever have that thought? Well, unfortunately, you can't. All those stupid things you did in your 20s, they're there. You can't erase the record, right? And uh, we look back in our 20s, in our 30s, in our 40s, and we say, man, if I could go back, what would I say? Well, one of the things that I would say if I could go back into uh, my 20s is I was so anxious. That's an anxious time of life where you're striving, hoping that things will work out. When you're on the front end of life, there's so much uncertainty. And if I could say anything to my younger self, it would simply be, relax. It's gonna be okay. Tough days will come, difficulties will come, but God is faithful. He will see you through it all. Anybody in here that's a little bit older can attest to what I'm talking about? that he is good, that he will provide, that he does keep you, right? Well, God is saying that to, to David. He's saying, David, I'm gonna give you rest like you've never experienced before, and not just for you, but for all my people, and that eternal rest is gonna come through Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. He is gentle, he is lowly, he invites us to take his yoke upon us for his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Maybe you are carrying things on your heart that God never intended for you to carry on your heart. Today, I invite you to take it to the Lord in prayer because he gives rest. Finally, we see that God promises a forever king who will serve us. And this, my friends, is deep. Pick up the B part of verse number 11 where we left off. He says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now here at the table is totally flipped. David goes from saying, God, I want to make you a house. The guy saying, no, you don't get it. I want to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now this is an interesting promise here. Uh, verse number 13 gives us a little bit more insight. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Make note of that, forever. 
Verse 14, and I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of, sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away uh, from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, again, here's this word, forever before me, one more time, your throne shall be established again forever, verse number 17, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. God says to David, I'm gonna do something that is beyond what you could hope, dream, or imagine. I'm going to raise up from your own offspring someone who will build me a house and who will have an eternal kingdom. Now, uh, in order to understand this portion of the promise or covenant with David, you have to understand what theologians call dual fulfillment. And this is something that we learn by studying the way that the apostles looked at the Old Testament. The apostles often took promises that had immediate fulfillment in the time of the person who received that promise, and they also saw a messianic fulfillment that was to come and be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So with David, God gave an immediate fulfillment to this promise through Solomon. Solomon was a son who later on would build God a house, a temple uh, that was a house unto the Lord. Solomon was that one who, yes, he sinned. He committed iniquity, unlike Jesus. And yes, God did chastise him with the rods of men and with the stripes of men from the nations. That was Solomon. But yet there's something messianic in this. How do we know? No, it's because of that key word that shows up in verse 13 and 16. Three times we see the word forever. Well, Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever. Solomon's throne didn't last forever, but the throne of Jesus will last forever. Verse number 13, I will establish the, uh, the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, verse 16, he says that, um, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Who is this referring to? Well, this is referring to uh, the forever king. It's referring to Jesus. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. How do we know this? Well, two passages. First, uh, keep your finger there. Go with me to Matthew chapter one. Can you do that? Matthew chapter one. And in Matthew chapter one, the New Testament opens with these words concerning Jesus. Verse number one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why do they refer to him as the son of David, the son of Abraham? It's because he is the promised offspring. God says to Abraham, I will give you a son. And through that son, there will be worldwide blessings. All the nations or families of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is that eternal son. He says to David, I will give you offspring that will come through your lineage. And through this son, there will be a forever and eternal kingdom by which if people enter in, they will know peace. Jesus is the eternal son. Now let's go real quickly to Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah chapter nine, and this is a familiar passage of scripture. In a few short days when we come back here for Christmas Eve service, and I've already booked your reservation, but when we come back for Christmas Eve service, we'll look at Isaiah nine, verses six and seven, 
And we'll read these words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who is this? Of course, uh, of the increase of his uh, government and of peace, there will be no end. There will be no end. This, my friends, is Jesus, our forever Messiah. And here's what God is saying to David that blows my mind and hopefully yours as well, is this king will come and he will serve you. While you're making plans to serve me, there will be a king that will come and serve you. And why will we need him to serve us? It's because we can't give him anything unless we first receive from him. We can't even do the will of God without the power of God at work in us. My friends, we all have a sin debt. If you're looking for equality in this world, let me tell you where biblical equality is found. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has a sin debt that we cannot pay, but how many thank God that he lived that perfect life, died on the cross so that you and I might be saved and have rest in him. Think about this. Out of all the Godfather movies that you saw, did you ever see the boss taking the fall for the underling? No, you never see that, do you? You see the underling taking the fall for the boss. If the boss commits a crime, it's the underling that goes to jail and takes the fall for the boss. Only in the gospel do you see the king who should be served dying for the servants. But that's what he does. He is the king of glory. It's the upside down kingdom. Death brings life. He comes and he serves us. He lays down his life. And what does he want in return? Not cedar houses. What does he want in return? Not just our activities detached from our heart. What does he want? Not for us to come to worship so we can simply check a box. What he wants is our obedience. He wants our hearts. He wants us to say to him, Lord, I surrender all. Today, you can know the eternal peace of the king. You can know his love. You can know his joy. And because it's a gift, all you have to do is receive by placing your faith in him. How many have received this gift and are grateful for it? How many believe that this is the greatest gift a person can receive. My friends, I'm just gonna to extend to you the greatest gift that someone can extend to another, and that is the good news that Jesus comes to give you rest. He comes to give you peace. He knows you're troubled in heart. He knows this is a fallen world. He knows there is no hope in this world. If you check the headlines, all you'll have is more anxiety and more stress. But if you want freedom for that, if you want to find meaning and purpose, love and acceptance, it is all found in him. So turn from your own ways and turn to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that if there be anyone that is in this service, as we have been praying, we pray again that they would turn to you from sin and that they would give you their hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. 
We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.